It's great to uh, have you with us today. Uh, excited you're here. Today is our, our final week of our series, New Year's Revolutions. And uh, we have started by looking at the choices that we can make each day. And then uh, you received a choices card to help you with that. And then uh, last week, we dug into why reading God's Word is so indispensable uh, to our lives. And I just want to remind you, these uh, Bible reading plans that we mentioned last week, if you didn't get one, they're still here. And I hope you'll understand it's not too late uh, to start uh, making a plan and following a plan to read God's Word. It's such an important thing to do. Now, before we get into the the third and final week uh, of our series, I want to kind of explain a little bit about what's happening starting next week. Next week, uh, we're going to launch our church-wide spiritual campaign called 40 Days of Prayer. And during these 40 days, we are asking that everyone join in, join us, as we learn more about prayer and as we practice prayer, we learn uh, how to pray uh, most effectively. We learn, you know, what do we do when we pray and we don't receive answers uh, like we think we should, and, and so much more. And I want you also to know that 40 days of prayer is not just about Sundays. If you just come to our Sunday services uh, during this season, you're going to get some really good things, but not everything that is intended for you to receive. Uh, We are going to be having 40 days of prayer small groups, and small groups are an essential part of this 40-day season. If you're not in a group, we want you to get in one, and we want to help you do that. We want to do anything and everything that we can uh, to make a place for you and find a place uh, for you to get in a group. Uh, We're also going to do some other things that I'm not going to tell you about now. We're going to unfold those as we go along the way, but I really want you to begin making plans if you haven't carved out some space in your life that this is going to be a priority for you that we together as God's people enter into this season of praying and learning what it means to follow God in this way. Now, what we're talking about this morning as we wrap up this series actually will help us get ready for our next series, 40 Days of Prayer. What we're talking about this morning is a vital means of growth that many Christ followers neglect, especially with our hectic lifestyles. It is this idea of community. This idea of doing life together. So I'm going to start this morning with a question, and it's real simple. The question is, are you happy? Now, there's an academic journal uh, called the Journal of Happiness Studies. And uh, they do research to figure out what it is that makes human life flourish, what it is that produces joy. And they have concluded that there is one factor that consistently separates happier people from unhappier people. Anybody want to guess what it is? Well, here's the answer. It's not wealth, how much money you have. It's not health, what kind of shape your body is in. It's not security or attractiveness or IQ or career success. What consistently separates happier people from less happy people is this. The presence of rich, deep, joy-producing, life-changing relationships with other people. Relationships, you see, are absolutely indispensable to joy and health. Robert Putnam is a a world-famous sociologist. He wrote a book in 2001 called Bowling Alone. It still remains one of the most influential social analyses of 
of social life in recent years. And he writes this in his book. The single most common finding from a half century's research on life satisfaction, not only from the U.S., but around the world, is that happiness is best predicted by the breadth and the depth of one's social connections. Now, what is true for happiness in general is also true for spiritual growth, for deep life change. If you want to grow spiritually, you must do life together with other people. Spiritual growth, you, you know this if you've been around here very long, is a core value for us at Southwinds. It's right at the center of our strategy as a church to make fully devoted followers of Christ. We want to help people grow, but, but how do you grow and how do you grow in the best way? Well, here's our central idea for this morning. One of God's primary means for changing us deeply is doing life together. You see, there's no way around it. Community is essential, indispensable to a healthy life, to deep growth. One of the classic passages about this is Acts 2, verses 42 to 47. And I want us to read this, and this is where we're going to be working out of this morning. This passage gives us a picture of doing life together. Luke writes, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Did you notice the recurrence of that word together? You see, these early Christ followers, they, they formed a new kind of community where they just did life together. They, they met together in the temple courts. That would be sort of like us gathering here together on Sundays like we're doing right now. They also met in homes. That's sort of like our small groups. Luke says they, they had meals together, they prayed together, they just went through the highs and the lows of life together. And in fact, when people had needs, they were so together that they could share their resources with one another. It was like they were a family, which is really, I think, what we're all longing for, this, this place to belong, a place to share life together. And I think when you realize this, you understand verse 47, why it says the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. People wanted to be a part of that. I also think it's why I want to ask you this question this morning. What would happen in your life if you truly pursued community with some other people here at Southwinds in 2019? What would happen in this church family if all of us together chased after relationships and community and fellowship in 2019? And we're going to explore this by looking at five biblical truths about doing life together. Here's the first one. You can write this down in your message notes. Doing life together is the way God created us to live. We were designed to do life together. We were created for community. 
Genesis 2.18, we read, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. Dallas Willard was a philosopher, very wise Christ follower, and he once wrote that the natural condition for human life is reciprocal rootedness in others. Now, that's how philosophers talk. (laughs) But let me put it this way. Just as a tree is rooted in the earth and that's where it gets nourished, human beings were created to be rooted in the hearts of other human beings. Knowing that someone cares for you is indispensable to health. In fact, in bowling alone, Putnam cites research that says isolated people are three times more likely to die than relationally connected people. In fact, he said this, and again, this is a sociologist talking. He said, if you do nothing else, he says, if right now you are not in a small group, then you join a small group, and it cuts your odds of dying this next year in half. And that is why our 2019 small group's motto is join a small group or die. Think about it, you know. There was another study that looked at hundreds of people who volunteered to be infected by the common cold virus. There are actually people out there, evidently, who would volunteer for that. Um, A bunch of people volunteered, and it turns out that relationally isolated people are four times more likely to get sick than people in community. Also, they discovered that these people have higher virus levels, Also, they discovered that these people produce significantly more mucus than connected people. I'm not kidding. Uh, I'm not making this up. It is true that unfriendly people are snottier than friendly people. Now, we have to live in what Dallas Willard in his book calls circles of sufficiency because we are not sufficient in ourselves. Just think about this. Start with your very first circle. Your mom gives birth to you, and, and she hold, holds you and feeds you. And when you cried, your, your mom would say what every mom says to every baby anywhere on the planet, right? Everything is okay. Now, is everything really okay? No. I mean, in this world, It is never true that everything is okay. So that means your mom was lying to you right from the start. Um, But every circle depends on a larger circle. It's just the way life is. That little circle of mother and child depends on the circle of a family. And then that family circle depends on a larger circle, like in a neighborhood. And then there's schools and, and there's workplaces and then whole cities. And then the city depends on a nation. And then nations depend on a world for people to be able to thrive and flourish. But is our world doing a good job at that? Again, the answer is no. You see, what we need is a circle that all other circles can depend on, a a truly self-sufficient community that every human community can be rooted in. And the Bible says there is such a circle, and it's called the Trinity. The eternal, self-sufficient circle of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You know, some of us find ourselves thinking that the Trinity is this kind of odd, abstract, sort of 
sort of irrelevant doctrine, but it is not the Trinity. It's beauty itself. The Trinity is reality. And that reality is the reality you are hungering for in your heart, whether you've ever realized it or not. There's a New Testament scholar named Gilbert Bilizikian, and he wrote a book a few years ago about community. And he, he writes in this book how in the very beginning, this is Genesis 1, verse 1, we are introduced to God with these words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then in the second verse, he points out, we're, we're told about another dimension of the Godhead, that the Spirit of God hovers over the water, over the chaos. And then in verse 3, we're told of another dimension of God's being, what might be called the Word of God, because in verse 3, God spoke, and it was so. Creation comes into being through the Word of God. And later on, of course, we're told in the Bible uh, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, that the Word of God is Jesus, God's Son, And Bill Ezekiel writes, Thus, one need go only three verses into the Bible to discover what is amply taught in the rest of Scripture, that God is presented as a tri-unity of divine entities existing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the eternal community of oneness from whom all other communities derive life and meaning. You see, the reason... The doctrine of the Trinity matters so much as it tells us what is the ultimate foundation of reality. It tells us that reality is not just matter or energy, not just atoms or quarks or particles. It is a community of divine persons who from all eternity are devoted to love and delight and joy and servanthood with one another Father, Son, and Spirit. And so the sufficiency of this divine ultimate circle, the Trinity, that is what ultimately gives us the assurance to say everything will be okay. See, the reason you need community is far deeper than just your physical survival or even your social and emotional well-being. It is at the very heart of the reality that God created. You see, you were made in the image of a Trinitarian God. And that means, among other things, when you choose not to do life together with others, whatever your excuse is this morning, you are choosing to act against the very nature of reality. You are choosing to act against the way that God created you. God loves community so much because it is at the heart of who he is, and he wants to share who he is with all those he's created. He wants us to know his joy, and that joy can only be fully known in community. Doing life together, it is the way God created us to live. Number two, doing life together is Jesus' plan to change the world. I want to show you a, a fascinating passage from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. This is Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 20. And it says there, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. So we see Jesus beginning his ministry. And I want you to notice the very first thing he does. Verse 16. 
As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. This is the day that Jesus begins the trip that will take him to the cross. And the first thing he does is he forms a small group with a few ordinary guys. Now, do not miss this. He didn't have to. Jesus didn't have to. Jesus is perfectly capable of taking this trip by himself. It's not like he needed someone to help him teach better. It's not like he lacked power for healing, so he needed some others around him. What it is, is he just wanted to do life together. This is how he begins his ministry. And when he finishes his ministry on earth and he ascends to heaven, we will notice that he does not leave behind any infrastructure. He doesn't leave behind a budget or a building. There's no clout, no connections. There's none of the things that we think are crucial for a movement. All Jesus leaves behind is his small group. Now, Obvious question. Why did Jesus, who was God's son, do it this way? I mean, what did he need these guys for? I mean, think about it. Did these 12 disciples add a lot of value to Jesus' teaching or his ministry? I mean, have you ever thought about this? I mean, these guys, they they never seemed to get what he was trying to teach. They were arguing all the time, and their number one debate was about who's the greatest, which was at the very heart, against the very heart of Jesus' ministry, which was about servanthood. Two of them actually asked to sit at his right hand in heaven, right hand and left hand in heaven. And the other ten, they get ticked off that the two ask. And the reason why they get mad is that's where they wanted to sit. They, they, they tried these disciples to keep children away from Jesus when Jesus wanted to see the children. They promised to be with Jesus in his greatest trial. And then when that trial came, they all ran away. And when Jesus said it was time to stay awake and pray in the garden, they all went to sleep. And when Jesus said it was time to go to sleep in a boat, they woke him up, you know, get him to pray. Thomas was a doubter. Judas was a thief. Levi was a tax collector. Peter, for crying out loud, cut off a guy's ear. I mean, where, where did Jesus get these guys? At Walmart? I mean, what did he need these guys for? And the answer is because he wanted to do life together. You see, Jesus wasn't needy or insecure. At the center of God's heart is love, and Jesus was God in the flesh. So Jesus just wanted to express love. Just before Jesus died, he gathered his disciples together, and this is what he said, John 13, 34, 35. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So Jesus tells his followers, I want you to be the most loving people in the world. So do life together. Because you can't love people when you're not doing life with them. And I just want to say to us, Southwinds, this is God's word to us. 
You see, we don't need to be the smartest or the richest or the prettiest or the most influential people, just the most loving. And Jesus actually is saying here, I'm betting the farm on this, that everyone will know you are my disciples if they look at you and if they say, this is the most loving group of people that I know. See, this is, this is how we grow deeply. This is Jesus' plan to change the world. When we do life together, when we love one another as Jesus has loved us, that's when we show who Jesus is. People are drawn to Jesus as we do life together, and then the world changes. I mean, think about it. Jesus started with 12 ordinary people, just a circle of friends. And now here we are, 2,000 years later, because they did life together. Third thing that we see, doing life together brings Jesus' unique presence. Now, Jesus is always present, every place, every moment, but he is present in his community in a special way. That's why he said in Matthew 18, 20, for where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. Let me give you a little picture of what happens in community. Years ago, um, I I was getting ready to barbecue, and I made a pile of charcoal briquettes, poured on a couple quarts of lighter fluid, because it's more fun that way, Um, and I started the fire. And my son, who was real little at the time, was watching this, because he was fascinated by fire. This is, as many of you know, a phase that uh, commonly little boys go through. It typically lasts 70 or 80 years, and... (laughs) And he asked what I was doing, and I told him, well, there's this something about these little briquettes. When you put them together, the fire can grow and glow, and they they get real hot. But when you pull one of them out on its own, it it quickly goes out, cools off real fast. It it loses the fire, and, and then it cannot do what it was made to do. It's like God almost made them that way. Dallas Willard makes another amazing statement. I want you to see this up on the screen. He says, personalities united can contain more of God and sustain the force of his greater presence better than scattered individuals. I mean, think about that. People doing life together, more of God, sustain the force of his presence better than individuals alone. That's part of the reason why Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 says this. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. You know, um, I've been a pastor for more than 30 years, and it still amazes me how many people simply choose to pull themselves out of the fire. They just walk away. Again and again, I see it. You know, this tendency that's always been with us has become greater and greater, I think, in recent years. I don't know if you saw any of the headlines last year, but a bunch of them just kind of exploded on the scene. And the reality is this. Our society is currently experiencing a loneliness epidemic. There are a lot of studies that are being published. People are looking into this, and these studies are revealing how destructive it is not to do life together. Here's some headlines that I I came across. Surgeon General says there's a loneliness epidemic, Washington Post. 
Young people report more loneliness than the elderly. USA Today. Uh, the biggest threat facing middle-aged men isn't smoking or obesity. It's loneliness. Boston Globe. The surprising effects of loneliness on health. New York Times. The Atlantic had an article, Loneliness Begets More Loneliness. New York Times again had one, How Social Isolation is Killing Us. And then social isolation kills more people than obesity. That was in Slate. About a year ago, maybe you saw this in the news, the nation of Great Britain actually created a brand new government-level cabinet position uh, that's been dubbed the Minister of Loneliness. This person's job is to look into and combat the social ills that grow out of isolation. See, as a Christ follower, let me just ask you, are you missing out on experiencing Jesus' presence because you're not doing life together with other believers, other Christ followers? Jesus calls his people to do life together with others of his people to experience his presence. Fourth thing is doing life together leads to spiritual growth like almost nothing else. Now in community, uh, this happens in two major ways, a couple words associated with this. Sometimes we need uh, a challenge and sometimes we need comfort. Now, the challenge of community, we see in Proverbs 27, 17, says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Now, some time ago, I asked a friend to hold me accountable in an area of my spiritual life. And it's an area that I want to grow. But I'd found it hard to make progress. And so every so often, he asked me, how are things going? And every so often, I have to tell him, how things are going. See, there are times when I may not want to follow Christ the way that I should, times when it's easier to continue down some old path. Sometimes, sometimes what keeps me on the path of full devotion is just knowing he's going to be asking, how are things going? You see, when I'm not doing life with others, I just drift, and so do you. The reality is that no matter how strong or intelligent that we think we are, no one is above the need to do life together. We are all prone to spiritual drift, and it, it is only in community that I can find myself spurred on to good deeds, challenged, held accountable. We all, we all just need this, let's call it a ministry of loving accountability. Galatians 6, 1 and 2 tells us how to do it. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Now, when real community is happening in our lives, there will be times when you're on the giving end and other times when you're on the receiving end of this ministry of loving confrontation. I mean, just ask you, is there someone in your life right now that you know you can love in this way right now? Or maybe does someone need to come to you and love you in this way to gently restore you to a life of full devotion? Doing life together, it's the only place where that can consistently happen. And then there's the comfort of community. 
uh, one of the things that prevents growth in our lives is when we hide the truth about ourselves from others. And doing life together makes it safe for us to come out of hiding. Uh, Some of you know the Genesis story. It says that Adam and Eve, uh, they were naked and not ashamed. In case you're wondering, that's not a fashion statement. (laughs) The idea is that there were no secrets, that they were fully known, that that everything about them was revealed and that, that they were loved. I mean, just imagine that, naked but not ashamed. It was only after sin entered the world when the fall came that shame came and that they went into hiding. Adam says to God, Genesis 3.10, after sin entered the world, he says, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And the human race has been hiding ever since. And sometimes people in churches hide the best of all. There's an old story. I don't know where it came from. I don't know if it's really true or not, but it goes like this. One day, uh, this kid comes running into the living room to tell his mom something, but he doesn't know she's there meeting with the pastor. He's so excited, he doesn't see that the pastor is there. And as he enters the room, he is holding this large dead rat in his hand. He says, Mom, you'll never believe it. I was out behind the garage, and I saw this rat running around, so I picked up a rock, and I threw the rock, and I hit the rat, and then I picked up another rock, and I threw it again, and then I stomped on the rat, and then I stomped on the rat again, and then I picked that rat up, and I threw that rat up against the wall as hard as I could, and then I picked it up, and I threw it again, and at that point, he notices the pastor's there, and he looks at his mom, And he knows that if looks could kill, he'd be as dead as the rat. And so he looks at this rat he's holding up by the tail. And in a very pious voice, he says, and then the dear Lord called him home. (laughs) You know, sometimes in churches, we get really good at hiding really good at pretending. We come to church week after week. We come with our struggles. We come with our doubts. We come with our defeats and come with our questions. We look around and we think no one else has the problems we have. And so we pretend. And we don't realize that those people we're looking around and we think their lives are perfect are looking at us and thinking the same thing about us. And sometimes someone crashes. A marriage ends. Someone has an affair. A child runs away. And someone just stops coming. And when we're in hiding, when we're, when we're not in community, no one, no one may know. See, this is a really important truth about life. You can only be loved to the extent that you are known. You see, as long as there's stuff you don't know about me, You may say you love me, but inside, even if I'm really good at projecting an image, there's something really deep in me that will say, yeah, but if you knew the whole truth about me, you wouldn't say that. You wouldn't love me like that. See, I can only be loved to the extent that I'm known, and I can only be fully loved if I'm fully known. And some of you here this morning, you are desperately lonely. And this is a big part of the reason why. You won't let anyone in. You're hiding. 
You, you keep a, a facade up that you're something you're not. And some of you, in addition to that, you blame other people for your loneliness when the reality is the problem is inside you. So until you stop pretending, you will never experience life together. You will never grow deeply because we cannot become like Jesus all on our own. Here's the last thing. Number five, doing life together is the only place we can love like Jesus loved. See, this is the place where we have an opportunity to love the way Jesus loved. Again, Jesus, when he was with his small group on his last night before he was crucified, he gives this one command over and over again. He says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. A little later on, he says, this is my command, love each other. At another point in this evening, he says, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Again, we see that the whole credibility of Jesus' mission rests on this, not that we are smart, not that we build something big, but that we love one another. See, it's so striking to me just to think that even after three years together, Jesus feels the need to give this command over and over again. And the reason is Jesus' community, that little group of followers, they struggle with love. And this actually answers an important question that some of you may have. Uh, And the question is this, if I get into a small group, can I expect effortless, deep, rich, problem-free, intimate community for the rest of my life? Probably not, because community is never easy. Henry Nouwen says this, community is the place where the person you least want to live with always lives. And all God's people say, have you noticed this? Like when we try to get together in groups, we typically try to hang around with people we like, which typically means people like us. It's really amazing how Jesus, he he didn't work real hard to make sure he put together a small group of people that were naturally compatible with each other. Have you ever noticed this? Think about it. Uh, Simon the Zealot was a disciple that Jesus chose to be in a small group. And Zealots were an extremist, nationalist, political party of that day. They were committed to the overthrow of the Roman government by any means possible, even violence, even assassinations. We might have called them terrorists. The, the zealots hated the Romans, they, and the only people they hated more than the Romans were the Jewish people who collaborated with the Romans, like tax collectors. And so Jesus is forming a small group, and he says, Simon, you're a zealot. You despise Romans, and collaborators like tax collectors all take you. And then he says, Matthew, you're a despised tax collector. I'll take you. And Matthew, why don't you room with Simon? You'll have some interesting talks, I'm sure. I mean, can you imagine what this was like? And it goes beyond this. You know, people have just romanticized ideas of what the disciples' lives were like. That passage we read from Mark 1 a few moments ago where Jesus is calling his first disciples. Uh, We read there that Jesus calls Peter and Andrew, and we're told they were casting their nets from the shore, which typically would have meant they didn't have a boat, which would have indicated that they were poor. And then he goes on to call two others named James and John. And we are told that they have a boat, 
And in fact, we see that their father, Zebedee, has other hired men. In other words, he has employees. And so we see two sets of brothers from very different financial spheres. Have you ever heard of anyone, I don't know, maybe in a place like this, dealing with envy issues over who has what possessions or over who's doing better in their careers or in their finances? See, Jesus puts people together that have problems with each other. And we see with James and John, they seem to be entitled rich boys because they have their mommy come to Jesus later and ask Jesus to give them the seats next to the throne in heaven. And again, Jesus is always teaching about servanthood. Die to yourself. And they ask this. And then again, the others get mad. Why? Because they wanted to sit there too. (laughs) See, it's not a real easy community. And, And if you do life together, I guarantee you, it will not be easy. There will be difficult people. Now, maybe right now you get in a small group. You look at your group. Everyone's nice. There is no difficult person there. Well, if that's the case in your small group, then I want to tell you, you should let us know, and we will assign one to you. Because we have a list. We know who you are. And we try to make sure they get evenly distributed across the church. See, the point is that Jesus did not come to create a community for perfect people who just naturally get along. What, what made his community explode was this undying, spirit-empowered determination that his followers had just to lavish love on anyone who could possibly stand it. And they did, and it exploded. Because we should never underestimate the hunger of a human heart just to be loved. What I'm saying to you today is you can have a New Year's revolution in your life in 2019. But it won't happen alone because we all need to do life together. It's just the way reality is. It's just the way God made us. It's just the way we experience Jesus' presence. It's just the way God designed it for us to truly grow So let me just say to you, do not stay in isolation. Set aside your excuses and get in community. Do life together and begin to experience the joy and the beauty and the love that God has for you. This is the word of the Lord. And all God's people said, would you bow your heads as we pray?